Strangers, only eight days left till Obsessed Fest. Have you gotten your tickets yet? It's going to be the Lollapalooza of true crime podcast conventions. Meet and mingle with all your favorite true crime podcasters like Patrick and Jillian from True Crime Obsessed, Ellen and Joey from Obsessed with Disappeared, Maggie Freeling, Amber Hunt, Robbie Chowdhury, Payne Lindsay, and so many more. There's going to be panels, Q&As, game shows, karaoke, cocktail hours, hangout lounges, book signings, live shows from Obsessed with Disappeared, True Crime Obsessed, Scamfluencers and Morbid, and my first ever live episode recording. I picked a super fun, crimey, juicy topic for this show, strangers. I hope to see you all there. Tickets to the nighttime live shows are extra, so make sure you snag those when you buy your Obsessed Fest passes. Join me and the superstars of True Crime Podcasting September 30th through October 2nd at the Hyatt Regency in Columbus, Ohio for a truly unforgettable weekend. For information and tickets, go to ObsessedFest.com. Have you ever seen the fascination that is Stonehenge? What could have driven an ancient people to erect a monument that seemingly defied logic? What could have possessed them with the strength and will to risk life and limb in doing so? What was so important, not just about the monument itself, but where it should stand and what it should be made of, that some untold number of people spent entire generations making it happen? And how, after all that, could its meaning have been lost to time? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who almost always avoids the big tourist destinations when visiting new places and almost always regrets it afterward. Almost always. I will admit that walking single file through another medieval castle or through yet another wing of yet another museum is not my idea of a good time. I wish it were because I know I'm missing out on some cool historical stuff. So it is with a heavy heart that I admit that I have never visited the subject of today's episode. I had the chance to visit Stonehenge when I spent six weeks in London in 2001, but I don't think the thought even crossed my mind. I prefer spending my time not navigating through throngs of school children on a field trip, being yelled at to not touch the ancient stones, I assume you can't touch them, right? And to not leave their Capri sons behind after their picnic lunch. In case it's not clear, I'm not a big fan of crowds of children, or crowds of any kind. That said, I think I'm still capable of marveling at the majesty and mystery that is Stonehenge. I've never visited the Great Pyramids of Egypt or Central and South America either, and I'm no less in awe of them. And Stonehenge certainly is awe-worthy. Every year, an estimated one million people flock to Stonehenge to see the impossible monument for themselves. For about 20 euros, you can visit the stones from a distance of about 10 yards. But for a premium price of around 50 euros, it turns out you can walk among the stones and you can actually touch them. While people visit every day of the year except Christmas, the two busiest days for Stonehenge are the summer and winter solstice, where upwards of 10,000 people will come to watch as the rising sun hits the ancient stones just so, creating a spectacular show of light and shadow. Everyone from the aforementioned schoolchildren to families to modern-day druids and pagans come to Stonehenge to marvel at its wonder. 
There are YouTube videos of the pagan ceremonies in which the pagans, or at least people dressed in white tunics and carrying medieval-type instruments, perform ritualistic ceremonies that I suppose are meant to be similar to the types of ceremonies and rituals performed there back in the day, though only the Lord knows what those ancient ceremonies really were like because there's no written record. Whether or not they're historically accurate, there is something incredibly uplifting about watching a crowd of hundreds praying for peace to the four corners of the earth. That's my kind of party, if I liked parties. But again, this place's origin story and meaning is still a mystery. So let's start with what we do know. Stonehenge, located about eight miles north of Salisbury in Wiltshire, England, nearly 100 miles west of London, for those of us whose geographical knowledge of England pretty much begins and ends with London, in an area dubbed Salisbury Plain, is a circular collection of two types of massive stones. Boulders would be a more accurate term. I'm not going to give you a lesson on what a henge is because I'm not your sixth grade world studies teacher, Mr. Cooper, who insists you call him Dave, who wears brown wide whale corduroy pants and Birkenstocks with socks. But I will tell you the name Stonehenge probably means hanging stones, which refers, apparently, to the stones placed horizontally atop their two vertical stone bases. The description over at EnglishHeritage.org.uk refers to the vertical stones as hanging or suspended in space, but, like, they're not suspended in space. They're supported by two other large rocks. Call me ignorant of architectural terms, you would be accurate, but is that not an arch? I'm so confused. Even more confusing, henge also means basically a really old circle or oval in the earth. I don't know why everything has to be so hard, but also I suppose the confusion only further highlights how this thing was built so long ago and with no official record that even experts are like, uh, what? Anyway. As for why Salisbury Plain, as opposed to literally anywhere else, not least of which might be close to where the rocks were quarried from, according to How Stuff Works, quote, experts believe ancient Britons prized the Salisbury Plain as a convenient hunting ground. In addition, a natural causeway created by glacial heaving and thawing formed a grooved avenue that coincided with the rising of the summer solstice sun as it leads up to the current Stonehenge site. While today we understand this as a natural coincidence, these ancient peoples could have considered it a sacred place divinely designed, end quote. The things I call arches are actually called trilathons, not to be confused with triathlons, which is a glacially boring sport for people who don't play well with others. They take like eight hours and watching one will literally turn you to stone. These trilithons are made from rocks called sarsen, each one up to 30 feet high and weighing 25 tons, and are arranged in a semicircle with an opening facing east. It's generally assumed the semicircle was, at one point, completely surrounded by a circle of trilithons. Much of this has fallen away over the centuries. Among the trilithons, other pretty giant stones called blue stones, weighing up to 8,000 pounds each, are arranged, or were arranged at some point in the past, in what was probably more trilithons, but which also have mostly crumbled or fallen over time. The rest of Stonehenge is best described over at EnglishHeritage.org this way. 
quote, Around Stonehenge, there are several outlying stones. Two of the four station stones remain in position, marking the corners of a rectangle. These may be related to the setting out of Stonehenge or to the solstice alignment. Immediately outside the northeast entrance is the heel stone, a huge, unshaped sarsen boulder. It may have been an early stone at the site, raised upright from its original position nearby. Also near the northeast entrance is the slaughter stone, a fallen sarsen that once stood upright with one or two other stones across the entrance causeway, end quote. Slaughterstone is a misnomer. Apparently, at some point in the Victorian era, people had decided that the stone had been used in ritual sacrifices. Of course, no one really knows if that did or didn't happen, except that the general consensus is it didn't. But it might have. Regardless, the ominous-sounding name stuck. EnglishHeritage.org continues, quote, Extending from the entrance of the earthwork enclosure is the avenue built to connect Stonehenge to the River Avon. End quote. But this structure was not the original layout of Stonehenge. In fact, it seems Stonehenge was built in four or five stages over the course of several millennia. First came the four or five pits, three with some totem pole thingies. Stonehenge experts don't know how these Mesolithic totem poles slash posts relate to the other stuff that came later. By 3000 BCE, there was a larger collection of pits just inside the outer circle that was discovered to be a massive burial ground. It is, in fact, the largest known cemetery from the 3rd century BCE. Somewhere between 2620 and 2480 BCE, the inner semicircle and its surrounding circle of arches was built. The sarsen stone was brought in from 20 miles away. The blue stone came from a baffling 140 miles away. And here it bears mentioning the rocks weighed multiple tons. And this all happened, remember, thousands of years before the people of England knew what a wheel was. Somewhere around 2300 BCE, the wide avenue connecting Stonehenge to the River Avon was dug. The avenue aligns with the summer solstice sunrise and the winter solstice sunset. About 200 or so years after that, it seems, the blue stones were rearranged with the inner arches and a series of holes were dug in concentric circles around the circle of arches. In all, experts guess it took 20 million hours to build, or nearly 3,000 years, which is a lot of time. That's the thing about Stonehenge. Its grandiose factoids are nearly impossible to wrap your head around when you think backward. 3,000 years of work? Who would take on this project in the first place? How did they do it? And for God's sake, why? Needless to say, anyone who has come across Stonehenge can't help but scratch their heads and go, uh, what? And also, uh, why? And one follow-up question, uh, how? And it's not just modern-day tourists asking these questions. With no record of the what, why, how of it all, every generation since the ones that built it have been asking the same questions. With such an ancient past, it's not surprising that many theories have been floated over the ensuing millennia to help answer such deep queries. The oldest such theory, or at least the oldest one to be recorded, comes from the 12th century writer Geoffrey of Monmouth. Monmouth recounted a tale of giants, murder, and a magical heist set in the 5th century CE when Britain had won its independence from the Roman Empire but now faced a Saxon invasion. 
The not-at-all-verified legend goes that after a protracted war between the Brits and the Saxons, a truce was called and the various leaders agreed to meet at Salisbury Plain to hammer out a peace treaty. Rather than make a plan for peace, however, the Saxons had smuggled in daggers and, on a signal, turned on their British counterparts and murdered them. Finally, Monmouth wrote, an exiled British prince and his brother, who just so happened to be King Arthur's uncle and father, respectively, drove the Saxons out and decided to build a monument at the place of the Saxons' treachery at Salisbury Plain. According to a summary of Monmouth's tale on the blog Stonehenge Stone Circle News and Information... He called for advice from a wise man of prodigious repute, Merlin, who told him of a fabulous stone circle that had been built by giants, hence its name, the Giant's Dance, on a mountain in Ireland. Ambrosius sent Merlin with Uther Pendragon to lead an expedition to Ireland to steal the Giant's Dance. There was fighting, of course, because the Irish quite understandably wanted to keep the structure in Ireland. But Uther's warriors prevailed. So, Merlin used magic to transport the impossibly massive rocks from Ireland to Salisbury Plain. I guess he just decided, what, the Irish didn't deserve to keep their own monument? That they should just stick a potato in it and be happy? And that is the version of events that was generally accepted up until the Middle Ages. People walked around for centuries believing, and I would imagine celebrating, a legacy of theft. What a strange thing to be proud of. Little did Monmouth or anyone else know, Stonehenge was much older than the 5th century. Turns out the magic of carbon dating is much more accurate than... magic. The next theory about Stonehenge came in the 17th century when King James, of Hotel Bible fame, like so many before and after him, was like, uh, what slash why slash how? So he contracted his personal builder, Inigo Jones, to figure it out. Jones determined, unequivocally, that Stonehenge had been built by the Romans in tribute to their god, Calus, a.k.a. Uranus, a.k.a. how everyone in my generation was raised to pronounce it, your anus. Hey, buddy, don't look at me like that. That's how we used to say it up until very recently. I just report the facts. Oddly enough, Jones may have had an ulterior motive when he attributed Stonehenge to the classical architecture of the Romans. According to the Worcester Cathedral Library and Archive blog, Jones' own architectural taste and style was of a classical bent, when the rest of the country preferred the Jacobian style. Might Jones have been attributing his own preferred building style to one of Britain's most venerated monuments in order to justify his insistence on reintroducing classical architecture? Like, see, even Stonehenge, which you think is all so cool, was built by the Romans. The Romans had style, man. Incidentally, here are the plans for your new castle, which, as you can see, will be in this totally awesome Roman style. That'll be one million billion British dollars. Thank you. Once again, like Monmouth before him, King James and Inigo Jones had no way of knowing that Stonehenge was far older than even the ancient Roman Empire. And then, less than 20 years after Inigo Jones' papers declaring Stonehenge's Roman origins were published, archaeologists John Aubrey and William Stukeley had the novel idea to excavate the area in and around Stonehenge to try to get some actual definitive answers. 
The excavations led to the discovery that Stonehenge had most likely been built by ancient Druids, who would have been native Britons. They determined this, by the way, not with any kind of fancy carbon dating, but just by measuring and realizing that the measurements didn't match up with traditional Roman design. John Aubrey was the first to discover the holes dug around the henge, which it turned out to be burial grounds. For his part, Stukely was the one who figured out the stone's alignment with the summer and winter solstices and was such a champion of the theory that ancient Druids built Stonehenge that he himself became a Druid. The reclamation of Stonehenge for the Druids resulted in a rise in visits to the area from self-identified Druids, pagans, and people in the so-called British New Age Travelers movement. Ironically, it was a convoy of such people in 1985 that led to the only incident of serious violence committed at Stonehenge, at least in modern times. In 1984, the People's Free Festival at Stonehenge had attracted a crowd of 100,000 peace-loving individuals who just wanted to celebrate, but did so at the major annoyance of area locals who petitioned the police to outlaw the festival. Despite the restrictions put in place for the festival the following year, some 600 people showed up in a convoy, some in their trailer homes, to celebrate peace, love, and understanding, and were welcomed by the police in one of the worst displays of police brutality that country had ever seen. According to one witness, There was glass breaking, people screaming, Black smoke towering out of burning caravans, and everywhere there seemed to be people being bashed and flattened and pulled by the hair. Men, women, and children were led away, shivering, swearing, crying, bleeding, leaving their homes in pieces. But again, in the end, it turns out radiocarbon dating done in the mid-20th century debunked the ancient Druid theory by showing that the stones predated the Celtic Druids by more than a thousand years. So if it wasn't Merlin, the Romans, or ancient Druids, who the heck built Stonehenge? Why, it was the aliens, of course! I mean, you knew we'd be getting to aliens eventually, right? According to the History Channel website, proponents of the ancient alien or ancient astronaut theory believe that the constructions of the monuments such as Stonehenge and the Egyptian pyramids and the Easter Island heads could only have been done by an advanced alien race who came here to teach us lowly humans how to build cool shit and then apparently peaced out for good. If that is the case, can I just make a quick plea to these aliens to please come back? We need your help. The pyramids and shit are super cool, but we have some major problems that we need some serious help with. On the other hand, I don't blame you for not wanting to hang out here. It is a hellscape. Ancient alien theory forefather, author Eric von Daniken, suggested that Stonehenge was a model of our solar system, somehow. And others believe it may have been an ancient landing pad for interstellar activity here on Earth. On an episode of the show Ancient Aliens, an author, investigative mythologist, and TV presenter by the name of William Henry refers to Stonehenge as a portal, saying, quote, The Stonehenge builders vanished. They were replaced. And they never came back. They are no longer on the planet. End quote. Where's the proof, you ask? Good question, stranger because we don't know. Okay, so it's probably not aliens, right? 
But even if we could find out definitively who built Stonehenge, the question would still remain, uh, how? The massive rocks, as I mentioned earlier, came from as far as 140 miles away. How did primitive people, without the use of wheels, remember, manage to transport these boulders that weighed upward of 25 tons, which, in American, is a whopping 50,000 pounds, 140 miles? Some geologists believe a massive glacier plowed its way through the area long before construction began, depositing the rocks along the way. In 1971, geologist Jeffrey Kellaway was basically like, look, there's no way humans moved these rocks, and it had to have been a giant ice sheet. Kellaway pointed to other places in England that had clearly received glacial deposits during long-ago ice ages. One of his biggest pieces of evidence were the bluestones found in early Neolithic monuments nowhere near the quarries they originated in that predate Stonehenge by as much as a thousand years. Although I suppose there's nothing saying the people a thousand years before Stonehenge didn't use the same method the people of Stonehenge did to transport giant rocks hundreds of miles. We just still don't know what that method could possibly have been. Computer models have helped back up Kellaway's theory, showing theoretically how these giant stones could have been deposited by massive ice sheets. But in an interview for The New Yorker in February of this year, glaciologist at the University of Sheffield, Chris Clark, pointed out, If glacial transport was moving the blue stones, then we would expect many other stones and rocks of similar geology to also be transported and deposited across the region. I know of no such finds. Touché. Another strike against the glacier theory is the improbability that a glacier would have deposited the exact number of stones needed to build Stonehenge. And I'm no expert on ancient architecture, but isn't it possible that the people who built Stonehenge were like, hey, look, we have this many rocks. What can we build with them? Rather than designing it first and being like, we need this many rocks to build this. Let's go get them. Okay. So if it wasn't magic, aliens, or glaciers, what was it that got those humongous boulders over all that land? In 2010, engineer and former BBC presenter Gary Lavin suggested that the Neolithic Brits wove huge wicker cages and possibly used oxen to pull the cages with the stones in them. He suggested that the wicker basket-slash-cages acted as a flotation device when the stones had to be transported across rivers. Lavin built a model of one of these huge wicker cage things, but only succeeded in moving one ton rock, nowhere near as big as the rocks used in Stonehenge. Around the time Lavin was touting his wicker basket theory, a team of researchers at the University of Exeter suggested the rocks were moved using ball bearings, planks, and concrete slabs. They estimated it would have taken about two weeks to get the rocks from point A to point B, at about 10 miles per day with this proto-conveyor-belt method. But before these two theories came to light, a retired construction worker in Michigan actually went out of his way to build a replica of Stonehenge in his backyard without the help of modern tools, just for kicks. Placing stones the size of walnuts underneath gigantic rocks, Wally Wallington demonstrated that one person could move a multi-ton rock about 300 feet per hour. Using a system of weights and levers similar to those the people who built Stonehenge could have used, 
Wally was able to place huge boulders vertically into the earth, standing them upright the way the rocks at Stonehenge stand. And Wallington isn't the only modern-day human to demonstrate these seemingly impossible feats of engineering and construction. Turns out a guy named Edward Leedskalman built an entire castle in Florida in the mid-1900s all by himself using this method with rocks as heavy as 30 tons each. So it actually can be done. And one has to remember that in the days before even books were invented, before everyone had 17 side hustles just to make ends meet, people had a lot more time on their hands. What else would anyone have to do than spend hour after hour moving giant rocks a few hundred feet at a time? It's not like they had to get back home in time to catch the real housewives of Gloucester. So now that I have single-handedly solved the mystery of how Stonehenge was built, it's time to turn our attention to why it was built. What were Neolithic Brits putting in all this hard work for? 20 million hours of it. Nobody builds a giant, super-heavy and hard-to-make structure for nothing. So, what was it for? Why did whoever it was that built Stonehenge build Stonehenge? What was so important that they bothered to lug millions of pounds of rocks hundreds of miles and then somehow hoist and arrange them into a really well-engineered and designed whatever it was? Unless the stones really were measuring the movements of the heavens for some reason, tracking time or maybe for agricultural purposes, I don't know, don't ask me. There doesn't seem to have been any practical purpose for it. It didn't store grain. It didn't provide shelter. What on earth was Stonehenge for? Well, in all likelihood, Stonehenge was built as some kind of religious monument. In 1961, Boston University astronomer Gerald Hawkins visited the site to watch the light show created by the midsummer sunrise. While there, he began to wonder if perhaps the stones were marking other things in the sky in addition to the sun. So he fed a plan of Stonehenge into a computer program, and according to a 2010 interview for Nova, author and archaeologist Evan Haddingham explained... What came out of the machine surprised and excited him. He came out with about 24 alignments, that is, orientations where pairs of stones seem to line up or point to the settings and risings of the sun and the moon in the sky. And he thought that number couldn't possibly be due to chance. So he developed the idea that Stonehenge had indeed been an astronomical observatory, and he pushed it even further. Using evidence at the site, he argued that Stonehenge had been used to predict warning times when the builders could have expected eclipses to appear in the sky. Asked why ancient people would have needed warnings about eclipses, Haddingham explained... He imagined that their priests would have wanted to know about the eclipses in advance in order perhaps to carry out impressive rituals where the moon would darken for a few hours at the high point of some ritual and reinforce their priestly power in the eyes of the multitudes gathered at Stonehenge. It's kind of a great movie image. But Haddingham and other archaeologists are skeptical of the idea that ancient Neolithic people possessed such advanced understanding of astronomy and believe it's more likely they, quote, 
were very much preoccupied with rituals involving life, death, fertility, their ancestors, and that this time of midsummer and midwinter that is marked out by the stones of Stonehenge was crucial to their values and beliefs, end quote. Which I guess would mean that the 24 alignments Gerald Hawkins found were, indeed, just a wacky coincidence. An excavation in 2008 suggested that Stonehenge was used as a healing site. According to ABC News, archaeologists found chippings from the rocks at Stonehenge that were probably used to make healing amulets. Even more compelling than the possible magic amulets, in my opinion, were the number of skeletons they found buried at the site that showed signs of serious disease or injury. Archaeologist Timothy Darvel told a press conference at London's Society of Antiquaries, quote, people were in a state of distress, if I can put it as politely as that, when they came to the Stonehenge Monument, end quote. Darvel referenced two skulls found at Stonehenge that showed evidence of primitive surgery. One skeleton had a damaged skull and injured knee, and while tests showed that the owner of the skeleton had likely lived in the Alps, it likely died at Stonehenge during one of its stages of construction. This was used to support the theory that people came to Stonehenge for healing, though it's hard to imagine traveling all the way from the Alps to Salisbury Plain with a busted head and knee, especially since, you know, there were no wheels, which meant unless this person was carried, they walked all the way there? And strangely, stranger, I didn't come across anything on the research suggesting these skeletons could have belonged to the workers who may have died or been injured during the time of construction. It was, after all, pretty dangerous work, I would imagine, hefting gargantuan rocks all over the place and then situating them so that the sunrise and sunset hit them just so, all without, you know, wheels and pulleys and whatnot. Also, not for nothing, but is it possible those people were sacrificed? Seems to me we're quick to accuse ancient peoples in Central and South America of sacrificing their own. Why not Neolithic Brits? I mean, there is something called a slaughter stone there, after all. The most recent theory to address the, uh, why of this mystery was unveiled in early 2021 by archaeologist and co-leader of the Stonehenge Riverside Project, Michael Parker Pearson from Sheffield University. Pearson and his team believed that Stonehenge was most likely a monument of ancestor worship. That revelation in itself is nothing much, I suppose, but according to Pearson, the blue stones in the Stonehenge monument didn't just come from Wales. The entire monument came from Wales. Pearson believes Stonehenge was originally built in Wales and was dismantled and moved as its people moved east into England. An archaeological scientist, Christopher Sneck, analyzed the remains of 25 people buried at Stonehenge in Salisbury and determined that they had not spent their lives near Salisbury, but that the isotopes found in their bones were a possible match for the area from which the blue stones were quarried in Wales. And so the theory gleaned from these findings was that perhaps these were the bodies of the crew who had moved the monument from Wales to England. And listen, far be it from me to question scientists, although you know I'm gonna because it's kind of my thing. But couldn't those findings also just support that people pilgrimage to Stonehenge either for worship or healing or even just for funsies? Maybe ancient people flocked to Stonehenge for the same reason modern people do. 
It seems to me, without primetime TV or social media or even trashy magazines to keep them entertained, maybe the ancient people in the area were like, hey, let's go catch that crazy light show at those funny rocks. I suppose it would have been quite a trek for such a frivolous thing as a sunrise or sunset, but human beings are nothing if not crazy, impulsive, and frivolous when it comes to what we will do to entertain ourselves. Bungee jumping, skydiving, driving cross-country with the whole family in tow, or in the name of worshipping our favorite god, giving money to Jim Baker, starting wars, speaking in tongues, whirling like dervishes. I don't know. Maybe Stonehenge is a case of, if you build it, they will come. Maybe it is a celestial map. Maybe it's just a colossal work of public art. Whatever it is, it is, like so many things we talk about on this podcast, one more expression of how complex and mysterious human beings can be. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, some of you have been hungry for more crime content. I get it. It's cathartic. Well, we heard your pleas, and next week we're bringing you one of the most notorious serial killers in U.S. history. Keep your car doors locked and check your rearview mirror for the Zodiac Killer. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca Gregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and researched by Jess McKillop. Our audio editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Ryan Garcia, Luther Creek, and Andrea Jones-Sojola. Our social channels are run and managed by Amy Sapp. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. 